0: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, thanks for joining me again today. It's been a while since I've had a podcast. I've been busy with the end of the semester things going on. In fact, The end of the semester happened, um, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks ago, and then I went immediately the next week into teaching a summer-intensive course and had grading to go along with all of that. Immediately after that, we had a seminary trip where we went to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. That was really a lot of fun to see some artifacts there, and also a couple of our students got to do some presentations on certain manuscripts. And it was just a lot of fun. But obviously that kept me very busy. And now things are starting to wind down a little bit. And so I'm able to get an episode in here. And I wanted to draw our attention to first Kings 18 and 19. Now, this is a very well known popular story. And I thought it'd be worth going over and drawing out just a couple things. One thing in particular in chapter 19 could I think, draw a a little bit of confusion, I think. But when we look at the story as a whole, I think it makes more sense uh, in the way that I'm going to present it in understanding it. So the story is very familiar in 1 Kings 18. We have Elijah confronting Ahab. Uh, Elijah had previously told Ahab that for three years there's going to be a drought that there would be no rain and that the land would suffer because of their sin. Ahab had intermarried with, with, uh, non Israelite blood with, with Jezebel and there was a lot of problems in the land there. Ahab is not, uh, not the epitome of what it means to be a king as we see very clearly in his life. So Elijah goes to him and challenges Ahab and really in that challenge, he presents God versus the deity of Baal, or some people would pronounce it Baal, Baal. And and in doing this, this is what the Book of Kings often does, is presents God as a god pitted against another god. And this happens in a variety of ways. A couple different times in the life of Ahab, actually, as well, uh, toward the end of the book, uh, you see uh, God saving Ahab, even though uh, Ahab's a sinner. But just because Damascus and and the Syrians are are wicked and they say, oh, it's just because God is the God of the mountains that that they are victorious. So then God sends a prophet to Ahab saying, you know what? I'm going to deliver you out of the this coalition of kings uh, led by Ben-Hadad, and I'm going, to, I'm going to save you just to show them that I'm God. So in, in one sense, God is constantly putting himself on display in the book of Kings, and that shows up here in 1 Kings 18 in a really marvelous kind of way. So Elijah challenges Ahab insofar as Ahab has allied himself with the prophets of Baal. And so in verse 17, when Ahab and Elijah meet, <coughs> Ahab addresses Elijah as the troubler of Israel, which is really kind of ironic since uh, Ahab is really the one that's, that's troubling Israel, as Elijah makes clear. So Elijah tells Ahab to gather all of the prophets of Baal, which he numbers as 450, and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So using our quick mathematical skills, we come to 850 prophets. Okay, so you, well, we, I guess we could say Elijah is fairly outnumbered at this point, right? And so they go on top of Mount Carmel. And if you've ever been to Israel, uh, this is one of the best, most beautiful overlooks of the Jezreel Valley, a perfect spot Uh, you can see the Mediterranean. Uh, you can see the Jezreel Valley. It's just a a perfect pinnacle in the land of Israel where this, this showcase could take place. And so they gather all the people together and they make a, they make really a, a bet of sorts of which God can come through. And whichever God can consume the offerings by fire, that will be the true God. And so Elijah gives the people an ultimatum, uh daring them, if you will, to follow Baal or follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Judah, and choose. Don't don't waffle between the two different opinions, the two different ways, but but to choose. And so Elijah, Elijah allows the prophets of Baal to go first, which, remember, are numbered at 450 men. And they go limping around, dancing around, they do all sorts of uh, acrobatics to try to get Ba'al to answer them. And they do this all day. they they start, they get to go first, they call upon the name of their God, Baal answer us, and he goes uh, all the way through midday into the time of the offering at the end of the day. So they they have gone, All day trying to do this. And so Elijah, it's his turn now. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's how verse 29 ends in 1 Kings 18. Then what you see in verse 30 30 is Elijah calls all the people to himself, says, come near to me. And he he repairs the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. The worship of Yahweh at this point was essentially non-existent. And so Elijah repairs that. uh, He starts to fill jars with water in verse 33, pours them on the offering to make it, you know, you don't want a, uh, a spark to catch the offering and people to blame that. So he's making it as hard as possible for, for God to, to come through as it were. And then when the time of the offering comes, Elijah in verse 36 prays and, and says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known to you this day that you, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. And that's, that's really the point of this is to show that, that Yahweh is God in Israel and there are no others. There are imposters, but there are none who match Yahweh's power. And so after praying to the Lord, fire comes, consumes the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, all of it is burned up, not just the offering. And it, uh, the fire comes and consumes the water that's in the trench as well. And this isn't just some, oh, whoops, what happened? Like, that was kind of cool. No, when everyone sees it in verse 39, they all fall on their faces and say, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. It's, it's probably lost on us because we... You know, we read the whole account here in chapter 18. We can read it in less than five minutes. But remember, this is an all-day occurrence, and the prophets of Baal are the ones who are who are just imploring Baal to act, to act and and to work out. And then here Elijah is he he makes it even harder for for Yahweh to come through, pouring the water on the altar, etc. And then he just prays and says, Lord, show the people that you are the God of the land. And immediately the fire comes and consumes all of this. And so this this powerful picture of who God is, uh, is on dramatic display and the people understand. And so Elijah seizes on this moment and he tells the people, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let them escape. So they... St- seize them all and they kill them by the Brook Kishon right at the base of Mount Carmel there uh, in the Jezreel Valley there. Now after all that I mean this is a significant turn of events if you will for the uh, prophet of Israel and for the people of Israel and so the people seem to be following Yahweh I mean they just killed I mean, obviously, Elijah couldn't do this all himself, right? So the people are the ones that are involved in this process. And that seems to be very, I I mean, this, this, if you put yourselves in the shoes of Elijah, or I guess we would say the sandals of Elijah, you would say, hey, maybe this will be the revival in Israel that we've been ho- hoping for and waiting for. But this is, this is the key. To understanding the whole story, I, I I think, especially when we get into chapter 19, is that no revival comes. Israel does not follow through with their repentance and wholeheartedly embrace God. In fact, Ahab uh, returns to Jezreel and nothing else comes of that. He is, for all intents and purposes, unaffected by what he has seen on top of Mount Carmel unaffected you you know all your prophets die sure but unaffected and so what's worse is he tells Jezebel in in chapter 19 what uh, Elijah had done and she I mean you think about the story I mean how did that story go you know by the way Elijah proved once and for all that Baal has no power and Yahweh's God well you know and by the way all your prophets died because of it you know how does that story get told in a way that that Jezebel decides you know what? I'm gonna go kill Elijah not not to mention that he has a God that completely obliterates all of Baal and the followers. I'm just going to kill Elijah. And and here's what's so interesting, at least in my mind, is in verse 3, well, verse 2, after Ahab tells Jezebel what Elijah had done, Jezebel sends a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So in other words, I'm going to kill you like the, you Killed all the prophets of Baal, and in verse three, uh, most English translations will have something like, "Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life." And you know, the the preacher will seize on this passage and say, "You know what? This is this is a great example of the cowardliness of Elijah, and how <clears throat> how Elijah is strong in one moment, and then." And then is weak in another moment. Weak he the the he's more scared of, of the queen than he's scared of all of these hundreds of prophets, just shows the power of Jezebel, her wickedness, etc. Something like that. You, know, you could go a lot of different ways in that, but I actually don't think that's what's going on here anyway. In fact, if you run a text comparison, which I've brought up on my computer here, uh, you actually notice that not all Bible translations translate it as Elijah was afraid. There are a few that translate it as Elijah saw. Most notably was the King James Version. Uh, The King James says, and when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba. Uh, You also have a couple others that talk about that. But uh the the Jewish uh, publication society uh their English translation says, and when he saw that he arose, went for his life uh etc the Jubilee Bible two thousand when he saw that uh the american King James Version similar the the a s v the American standard and when he saw that uh darby's translation when he saw so there are some English translations that talk about he saw. And so the question is what in the world wasn't Elijah afraid or did he see something? And the issue is a textual issue in verse three, because the Hebrew word for seeing and the Hebrew word for being afraid in the consonantal text, meaning like if you didn't have the vowels there, it would look the exact same. And prior to the Masoretes, uh, Hebrews, uh, or I mean, the Hebrew language would be read by the Hebrew people without vowels. You would just be able to sound it out and figure out what's, what's in there. Now, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, which, which became the popular way of reading scripture around the time of Christ, just before and after, that does read feared, which I would argue the translator is probably just adding what he, what he thinks makes most sense. But the Masoretic text, which, um, is, is a largely, um, traditional preservation of the Hebrew text, et cetera. We can't get into all of that. That it's pointed as he saw. So literally the way our, our best Hebrew manuscripts have, he saw and, and got up and left. Essentially, that's how the Hebrew reads. And it's really an interpretation to say that he was afraid because that's not what we have in the Hebrew text uh, before us. Now, it's possible that that is what the text read. And when the Masoretes came and put the vowel pointing in, pointings in, they decided, you know, what, we're going to put it in as he saw, even though uh, it could be he was afraid. And it would look the same in the continental text, but they just mispointed it when they put the vowel markings in. However, I would just point out that it's, that it, that doesn't make any sense to, to, to really make that kind of significant, uh, mistake, I guess, because to see something and be afraid are pretty different. Um, uh, they, they are, they require very different actions. So I think it's actually better to read it, uh, as he saw what was going on, because that's, that's a, a harder reading if you will or it's it's easier to see somebody trying to change it to being afraid versus somebody changing it backward to just seeing something if that makes sense someday i'll have to do an episode on textual criticism and and little issues like this where the translations might differ and just walk through how we could how we make those decisions but i think for now I think in context, it actually makes more sense to see this as Elijah seeing and not being afraid. Actually, I don't think Elijah was afraid at all. I mean, uh, let's, uh, I mean, this is this is the preacher's, you know, wheelhouse, right? Uh, Elijah got scared when he, when God just showed himself to be so powerful and he shouldn't have, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But actually, if you're reading the story, I, I don't think Elijah was scared at all. I just think that, he saw what was going on, which is what I mentioned earlier, that the, the repentance and revival of the people was non-existent. And that the leadership of Israel, Ahab, uh, who's supposed to lead as God's uh, chosen, as God's king being the leader of the people, he's supposed to lead that repentance For the people. And Ahab didn't, wasn't, wasn't even affected at all. He just told Jezebel and he's allowing Jezebel to hunt Elijah down to kill him. So it's very clear that Israel in their leadership and in their people as a whole as well are not interested in following the Lord and repenting and, and, uh, turning around from their iniquity and pursuing him. And so Elijah sees that. And so then he leaves, he flees. And the reason he flees, most likely, I think, is not because he's scared and he just wants to preserve his life or anything like that, because he goes and asks God that he might die elsewhere. So if Elijah was just afraid and wanting to preserve his life, why would he run away and ask to die? That doesn't make sense. But it makes sense if he realizes or thinks that he's failed. In other words, Elijah's trying to lead a revival in Israel, and he thinks that he failed. And so he says, Well, obviously uh, I have failed. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 19, he says, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. In other words, he's associating himself with his fathers, the prophets, I think he's he's referring to there, in the sense that I have not been able to lead the people to repentance. I've not been able to turn their hearts to God and, and evoke that repentance and worship. So I, I've, I've, I failed. And so, so by asking God to kill him in the South, in Judah, in, in the wilderness, Jezebel and the, and the worshipers of Baal can't take credit for Elijah's death. If Jezebel were to kill Elijah in Northern Israel, in Samaria, she would essentially be able to say yeah um Elijah and Yahweh won a minor victory in in the Mount Carmel uh manifestation of power they they won a minor victory but we have the ultimate of victory by killing Elijah and so Elijah doesn't want that to happen so he sees the people they're not going to repent and so he he flees to the south and asks God to kill him so that Jezebel and the Baal worshipers won't get credit for his death. I don't think he's he's going into uh unreserved depression be uh, because Jezebel's trying to kill him or anything like that. No. He might be in depression, uh but the motivation or cause of that would be the fact that his people are not repenting. And so God's not done with him yet though. And so then the rest of chapter 19 uh, involves God commissioning him to install, uh, Elisha as his successor and to appoint the next king, uh, Hazael over Syria and also to appoint Jehu over Israel. And of course, Elijah, uh, continues on and serves the Lord throughout that. But I think it, it's a mistake. It's a mistake to see Elijah as being a wimp or a coward in chapter 19 of fleeing away. That that just doesn't make sense. Now, obviously reading the English, there are a lot of English translations that say he was afraid, but as the Masoretic text reads, as uh, reading the Hebrew text there, it makes sense to see Elijah just as calculating what's going on and not necessarily being afraid of Jezebel. I mean, he sees what Yahweh can do. I mean, Yahweh Elijah has a great relationship with, with Yahweh and knows Yahweh can do whatever he wants. So I don't see contextually any reason to say that Elijah is shaking in his boots or anything like that. I think that he's making that calculation and trying to serve the Lord the best that he can, uh, understanding that Israel has solidified themselves in the rebellion. They're not going to be repenting. And so he asks the Lord to, to kill him in, in Judah, in the wilderness, so that Baal does not get the glory for that. So if you agree with me on that, great. If not, I'd love to hear from you anyway. Uh, Feel free to email me or uh, drop any comments. My email is peter at petergayman.com. If you're interested in the seminary at all, check out shepherds.edu. And until next time, we'll see you later.